1: raise your hand if you have struggled with the best practices for inclusion with your classroom. You guys can't see me, but I'm raising my hand. You may be raising your hand too. This was something that I really struggled with in the classroom. Determining what was the best way to include my students within the rest of their community and then advocating for it. Oh my gosh, half of our job as a teacher is to advocate for our classrooms. Even when I knew the right solution, it was making sure everyone else was on board. Well, today I'm getting to share my conversation with who I really think is an inclusion expert, Dr. Paula Kluth. Paula is a consultant, author, and advocate. Now, there were so many things that Paula could have chatted with us about. I mean, she is has such a wide range of knowledge in so many areas. But I really took this opportunity to pick Paula's brain all about inclusion. And oh my gosh, we covered a lot of ground. We talk about inclusion in the virtual setting, in the socially distant classroom, and then just general inclusion tips and best practices. I love Paula's approach at being proactive, at being creative, and looking for opportunities. She makes it seem so doable and so easy, and I just really, truly love her advice. Um, So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right in. Hi, Paula. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Sasha, for having me. I sure do appreciate it well, I am just really i've been really been looking forward to this conversation. I've read so many of your books, and I know there are so many topics you could talk about, but I'm especially excited today to really focus on inclusion because I know that is something you are so passionate about
2: absolutely i'm you know it's it's the topic of not only my first book but many of my books actually, <laughs> but um was actually a hyper-focus um, kind of a topic for me during the pandemic. And I know we're going to get into that, but just, you know, at a time when we have to kind of redefine what inclusion is and was. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I was more interested this year um, maybe than ever before because there was a lot we we could not take for granted.
1: Yeah, that's so true. And something that was so pushed to the bottom of the totem pole with everything that was going on.
2: Absolutely, and it you know was a fear. Uh, That was one of my first um, reactions. Was will inclusion be considered? Will it be? Will anybody do professional development? Will anybody care about this when there's so many other concerns? But the good news is, um, I think that that was an assumption. But um, the good news is, we I was able to find quite a lot of folks who not only centered inclusion at this time, but found that it was harder than ever to do, you know, in some ways, but also more, more important than ever before. So I think there was this uh, silver lining. There was also an embrace and an understanding that we, we need each other more than ever. And that goes for kids too.
1: Yeah. You know, I'd love to know what kind of initially sparked, you know, that fire within you to really advocate and teach about inclusion.
2: Well, I you know, it's so funny because um it was for years I didn't really think about or talk about it too much and I was doing a podcast probably five years ago and somebody asked me that and I started talking about this story, which actually now I find why didn't I write about this or, or think about <laughs> this before? But actually when I was a I'm fifty years old, when I was a senior in high school um, my high school brought some kids with disabilities with pretty uh, complex support needs back to my high school. and I know I now know that those students were in a facility for students with disabilities were in a, a, a school um, for kids with disabilities, but only for kids with disabilities. and they brought some of those students back to their home school, their their high school. And I became super interested in this and noticed, of course, these students in the lunchroom. And I approached the teacher and said, you know, do you need, you know, do you need anything? Do you, is this a mm-hmm. thing that kids can sort of be involved in? She's just one of my heroes to this day. Her name's Mary Durgener. And because of her, this whole career has been possible, but she was just a, a visionary. And she got so many kids at my high school involved She got, you know, so many students talking to each other, interacting with each other. She was just really the master of figuring out that this doesn't need to be formal. This doesn't need to be a thing that I can just help kids to start conversations, that kids can figure some things out on on their own. I mean, she would do things like she would just say you know, Scott needs a ride to the basketball game and you should go get him. And I mean, I remember showing up at somebody's house and the family didn't even know I was coming, you know, here they had never had a their their child had never had, you know, a friend, a student without a disability. And the parents that like at first were kind of like alarmed and then it's like, okay, off you go. Um, She's just such a hero to me. And I always talk about her because I think sometimes we do need a lot of planning and sometimes we do need to figure out things and we do need to put scaffolds in place for friendship and connection. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes kids need permission. They need a bit of a push. They need an idea. And she was so, so smart about uh, starting lots of conversations and and just finding real, um, I think finding a lot of richness in small moments and finding spaces for individual kids to connect.
1: I love that because sometimes it is just about those small moments and those opportunities for that.
2: Absolutely. She's just a hero to the day and she knows it. I mean, she's been <laughs> in my life. She's been in my life. And that's and, and th- that's the other thing I think that's important when we talk about inclusion is that special ed teacher, you know, all teachers are there for all kids. Every caring adult in the building is should be there for every student in the building. And, you know, every educator is an educator for all. And thank goodness I mean, Mary Durkner is one of the most influential educators of my life. Thank goodness that she understand what I now call radical role sharing. She understood that she wasn't just a teacher for 10 kids. She was a teacher for all kids. And we want that from not just general ed teachers to embrace that. We want special ed teachers to embrace that too.
1: Yeah. And if everyone embraces that, I mean, think of the ripple effect. I mean, look at her impact on your life, and how many, how how much change you've caused with so many educators and students because of that. So it's it's cool to think about the potential if we all embrace that.
2: I, I would absolutely um, put an exclamation point on that, Sasha. And I would also say that this is a no. My my you know my work is in no small part, um, you know a you know to I I I don't know. I guess I'll say this backwards, but I mean. That I also just want to send out uh, a Valentine of sorts to those friends that I met, to Allison yeah. and to Scott and to Jerry, and it's, you know, the first friends I ever had with disabilities, and you know, just really folks who were there for me. Um, you know, I had some difficult things happen, as many people do. You know, in their young life, and every it's a very, you know, it's your your mm-hmm. your your time when you know you're you're becoming more independent and. Um, you're learning how to, you know, you're gaining your own coping skills. And these were, um, really wonderful friends, uh, for me. And, uh, I think it's, it's known in no small part to who those individuals were. So when we, when we don't facilitate or celebrate inclusivity, there are so many losses and, you know, to think of my life without those connections. Um, well, let me just say, I don't want to think about my yeah. life without those connections. So <laughs> It's, um, you know, it's it's a loss for, for students, it's a loss for adults, and it's a loss for the community.
1: Yeah, that's so true. And I love, like you said, that you've championed kind of continuing this inclusive process even during a pandemic. So, you know, I'd love to hear about your new book and, and kind of the whole idea, you know, people wrapping their brains around what inclusion can look like in virtual instruction.
2: Well, yeah, I had to wrap my brain around it as well. Um, <laughs> you know, the that my first question was, is this a thing? Can we do this? And so I, again, credit where credit is due, I started reaching out to a bunch of folks that I knew that were creative and folks who were, I knew would not let this go. Um, Parents, teachers. um, And then I was following people on social media who were uh, like a dog with a bone. And I started just contacting people And so just said, how is this, how is inclusion going to look? What are we going to do for peers? How can students get their work adapted? How can families do this? And so it was really an effort of just, you know, reaching out to a lot of other and just really collaborating um, and just saying, you know, let's, let's think about this together as a community and decide not only what are the, you know, what are the parameters, but what are the strategies that people are employing and let's share them as quickly as we can and this needs to be a dynamic process and it needs to start right now. And so a lot of it was um, in the summer, I was going on my Facebook page. I was doing Facebook live. I was inviting people in conversations. I was, I was tagging people on Twitter. I mean, you name it. And so in the (laughs) book, there's a, a, you know, over, I think maybe there's at least maybe almost 20 um, different voices and contributors. And some of them, I didn't even know. um, My first interaction with them was writing something with them. So these are not all people I knew about before. I just I started just finding people and saying, I like what you're talking about, will you work with me?
1: I love that. I mean the this community, you know, like we said there are silver linings in this that this community really truly came together to be like, okay, as educators as parents, what are we going to do in this, you know, really not great situation to make it the best we can. That's so cool that you know people were wanting to contribute and help to to share ideas. They were absolutely generous
2: and Including, um, even though the chapters, none of the chapters are authored by students, students themselves, but students were incredibly creative as well, and so a lot of these ideas are are inspired by children and young people yeah. as well. So, yeah, it's a de- definitely was a vil- t- has taken a village, right?
1: Yeah. So what are some of like, I know you have a ton of ideas in that book, but if you, if you don't mind sharing one or two of like the quick wins that you're able to get through creating simple solutions for having inclusion within digital learning.
2: Sure. Well, um, one of the things that we started talking about right away was how to get kids together. So I'll just share some of my favorite stories about that. Um, I met a wonderful teacher named Sarah Brady, who is a teacher in the Los Angeles area. And she was doing virtual lunch tables right off the bat. And these were truly inclusive. And what I mean by that was, she wasn't taking a group of students with disabilities and maybe trying to find a student without a disability to attend. She was really, you know, she was an inclusive. She was an inclusion facilitator. She was a co-teacher, so she was looking for her students, the friends of her students, the the classmates who had good relationships, and so she was, you know, creating these lunch tables around individual students. So the one student that's featured in the book, his name's Finn, um, and she essentially contacted other kids who had good experiences with him in a good relationship and said, hey, do you want to do this? So it's maybe, I think, four students without disabilities and Finn. And what was really creative about it was she really um, worked hard on making this kind of, um, I don't know, a two for a three for one. I don't know. She not only supported kids at a time uh, when They were vulnerable. You know, all kids were vulnerable. I think again about being here's a special ed teacher who's really showing up for kids with and without disabilities. So they get to meet with an individual teacher at a time when all kids probably needed that kind of contact. She's just, you know, shooting these questions out to them. Hey, what's new on TikTok? You know, really informal, (laughs) but having their, their lunch, they're just hanging out. But she's also working really hard to provide fluency support for Finn with his new augmentative communication system. So while she's, yes, has this goal of absolutely having these kids stay connected, the entire time that she's meeting with students, she's you know, modeling on her own communication board, um, you know, where you can find these topics. She's honoring Finn's voice when he initiates his communication. So um, it's just a really elegant example of how we can not only help all kids um, really stay in the loop socially, but how we are unwilling to give up some of those really important goals and objectives. Um, like, um, you know, like learning those menus or learning how to just, you know, interact with friends using my device. Um, so that was one story that hit me immediately. Um, another is us actually also from, we have, we have kind of stories coast to coast, but just kind of staying in the peer theme. Um, another really great example was how folks were, um, creating peer tutoring, uh, relationships, So um, I worked with Mary Falvey on that chapter, Dr. Mary Falvey, who is an old friend and colleague and also from the L.A. area. And Mary has been working with um, a student named Logan, who we write about. And Logan's uh, one of the peers that he, I shouldn't say I'm using peer in air quotes here, but um, he has a great relationship with his sister, Emma. So Hmm. Emma was being used as a peer tutor for him in more formal ways. And one of the things that Mary and I have subsequently talked about is how um, a lot of siblings were kind of called into these relationships, you know, to kind of support schooling in a new way. And so now when I present in the book, I talk about how we can empower families and, and peer and um should say um siblings to uh these are things we can continue doing after the pandemic is over but by just sending home you know whether it's really giving really discrete assignments like could you read you know a a seven year old or nine year old doesn't know how to conduct a lesson necessarily but if we said things like hey would you mind reading 15 minutes a night with your brother or uh, we also talked about sending home games that are you know standards themed like yeah. Sending home a game or doing a puzzle that's related to the solar system. And that's, you know, that could be a repeating homework assignment or here's a memory game. You know, that little memory game where you flip over, you know, two at a time to make matches. Could yeah. we send home a memory game that's themed on something that we're learning in class or flashcards? And so I, we started talking about other ways that we could eat more easily bring in peers, like maybe doing those same things with peer tutors. Um you know, giving them um, some uh, you know exercises or games that they can use because some kids, especially younger children, they d- they're not really sure how to tutor. And usually, when they are helping peers, there's adults around. But mm-hmm. now, if we're in a breakout room or if we're doing this tutoring on the, you know, it, in addition to what's happening at school, those scaffolds may not be in place. So we're saying, you know, do some more informal things like like you know have students engage in some of these. Um, these repeated activities or use something that we call a peer tutor script where you highlight a few little steps it's just a mini lesson plan is what it is but where you highlight a few ideas or a few bullet points and then students can easily they know they they, that that anxiety melts away it's like oh I know how to do flashcards with my you know my friend, I just have to follow these quick and easy steps. So we found that some of these peer tutor scripts um, where they're just a few bullet points have really helped kids. And we've been really excited with this peer tutor um, content because we're now reminding everybody in the virtual land, that the landscape, that you no longer have to have peer tutors from the classroom. They can be from, you know, upper grades. They can be from the middle school. They can be from the high school. They can be yeah. that, that neighbor, that, that that good friend that moved away to California last year or Texas. And these are some of the things that we're hoping will last after the pandemic is really understanding that these some of these exciting practices we can adopt long after this is over, like not feeling confined for peer tutoring and support to our schools or classrooms.
1: Yeah, that's huge. I mean, it, it provides so much more flexibility that we've maybe been wanting, but not really realizing was such an obstacle.
2: Absolutely. And can I just share one more? Um, because it Please, goes in please with
1: it. I love uh, these. Yeah. So
2: another one of my favorite stories is from I have to get out of California because I have to honor my <laughs> Midwestern folks here. But um another one of my favorite stories comes from here in the Midwest, and it's a story from a mom, um, her name's Lisa Orvis, and her daughter's name is Chloe, and Chloe is Down syndrome. Um, and Chloe is a senior and she was taking guitar uh, class uh, when the pandemic hit. And the mom, uh, Lisa, said, you know, she, they, 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 you know, translated these lessons and they told Chloe, okay, take videos of yourself playing these things and then send them in. And, you know, it just wasn't enough for her. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't connected to peers. It was no longer very motivating. So Lisa just wrote to the teacher and said, could this be made into a club in some way? And so the teachers essentially responded and said, yeah, let's ask other kids. And they started this guitar club in essence. And they ended up just jamming. They bring it, you know, other, <laughs> another music teacher joined, um, her music teacher joined, other kids joined, and they would kind of jam every week. And that has now um, been really helpful. I'm sorry, she was a junior last year. So now she's a senior, she's playing guitar again. It was a good way to kind of get to know some of these peers that she maybe didn't know as well. And now knows a little bit better, um, and she's was able to you know again polish those skills in ways that were socially connected. So that part of the book we talk a lot about how the pandemic, um, and and we talk a little bit of how they adapted guitar for for Chloe and things like that. But one of the things that um, that Lisa points out because Lisa's also a paraprofessional is that the pandemic allowed them to um, be really creative with her adaptations because they were able to see into the music class. They were able to see what the teacher was doing. They could then adapt for her. She also has some sensory needs, so they could adapt to those sensory needs. And that um, helped us to think about how one of the outcomes maybe from all of this could be in in the name of inclusion is that a lot of parents have been seeing into those classrooms. They've been really Mm -hmm. getting a glimpse at what inclusion looks like, what education looks like. And uh, in the section I wrote with Lisa, we really encourage people to think out of the box for things like electives or clubs or some of these things like guitar music, um, British history, you know, think about your electives. Think about, you know, uh, what this can look like. And, And Lisa was saying, you know, now we can glimpse into a classroom for a couple of minutes, we can spend some time at home if you're a parent who's got an idea about how you might adapt some of these things. And maybe it's going to open us up to thinking out of the box because we can, it's a little bit easier for us to sample the courses, you yeah. know, at least for those that are still virtual to get a glimpse. Oh, I think we could adapt it this way. And I even, because I used to teach high school and I think, my gosh, we used to have to run up and down the hallways, you know, and I can't get to, I'd love for you to try to British history, but I can't get to third floor, you know, for us to visit
1: Logistically, this, this isn't going to work. Yes, I mean, really, when you
2: think about it now. So some of those opportunities might be opening up as we, again, I know we're going to be out of the pandemic soon, but knock yeah. on wood, but maybe it's helped us to think more openly about possibilities. And one of the things Lisa says is, just ask, try new things. That's one of the things that we, we learned. And she said, I was just pleas- pleas- pleasantly surprised when I said, hey, can we start this thing? And the school's like, okay, let's start it. Yeah. So so we wrote about what are some other clubs that we might bring into schools now and in the future um, when kids really need to make some co-curricular or extracurricular connections. So those are just a few of the things um, that, that, that I think we're really peer heavy um, and we're just really, I think I wouldn't say easy to replicate, but could be replicated. And I'm hoping yeah. that people are embracing.
1: And I love like the idea that you keep, you know, coming back to as, as like, what can we maintain from this? Like, what can we continue on with? And I think, Some of these ideas do have so much sustainability because at the end of the day, this is sad to say, but logistics rule the world in schools. Like if there's not a staff member, if there's not a class at that period, it's just kind of like period, end of story. But hopefully this will give us more ideas, like you said, about just being creative and like, hey, well, what if we zoomed in or what if we did it differently? Because we saw that it could work.
2: Absolutely. Like one of my favorite things. Um, well, I shouldn't say this is not my idea, but my idea is in the book, let me say. So a lot of folks, and I'm sure you know this too, Sasha, were doing a lot of um, virtual calm corners, you know, like they were doing, I don't know, people call them different things, but uh-huh. um, virtual safe spaces. And so back in our, you know, in the classroom, we would say, do you need to go to take a break? Do you need to go to this calm space? And so a lot—it's not my idea because a lot of people did it. But in the book, in the accommodation section, um, I write about using virtual calm spaces, and so I, I made my own, and it's um, www.virtualcalmcorner.com, and I just made one just so people could see what I'm talking about. But anybody could make a calm space. And what's on that site is, you know, there's there's visuals like you can watch Bob Ross paint a picture. You can mm-hmm. watch a lava lamp. You know, there's audio tracks like you can listen to the waves. There's, um, you know, there's meditations, there's yoga. And so imagine a world where nobody necessarily, unless they, you know, unless movement of certain kind is needed, would necessarily need to leave the classroom to get that sensory break. Yeah, You could just put your headphones on. Maybe you go back to, maybe there's a cubby in back, but you can go and just have your getaway. Maybe everybody puts their headphones on and has a getaway for 10 minutes. And so that's the UDL of it all. It's where we've now discovered through this time period that a lot of resources can come to the child individually. And I think that's really exciting.
1: Yeah. So kind of, you know, Thinking away from virtual learning as hopefully we are moving more and more into in-person. What advice do you have for teachers as we're in-person, but we have, you know, these kind of intense social distancing guidelines to follow that how can we still provide opportunities for social interaction and friendships and inclusion when it seems like everyone's telling us we can't do that anywhere? I know. It is
2: going to be a challenge and I, I cannot sit here and pretend that I have all the answers. But one of the things that we did learn is that there, you know, there are lots of ways for kids to connect and socialize, um, that don't require them to be sitting next to each other and engaging in a really humorous three-step handshake brain break, you know, (laughs) and I'm the queen of those. Believe me, I love that stuff and I've written a lot about it. So it pains me to say that.
1: It'll come back.
2: (laughs) It'll come back. It will. Um, But for example, um, you know, I have so many students that I know that are thriving with tools like Flipgrid and Jamboard. And you know these kids too, Sasha, where somebody will say, you know, I'll just give you one example. My friend um, who is an adult woman, she's not a, a student, but she said to me that Facebook changed her life because she no longer had to, if somebody told her a joke, she didn't have to worry about laughing at the right time. If somebody you know, um, you know, share something that's really kind of intense. She doesn't have to say "Am I?" what's the right reaction to that? She can research it. She said on Facebook, I can take my time. I can see how other people responded to the joke. I can model after that. I can research what's funny about this or what's intense or serious about this. I can craft my response. Nobody's judging me on my affect, my eye contact, and I can be a different kind of friend. Now people know I'm funny. Now people know how warm I am. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. What social, we talk so much about social media dividing people, but it can actually bring a lot of joy and intimacy to these, uh, to folks who, you know, have been, they've been, Uh, You know, in in many ways, that's been um, not available to them because of the norms, you know, the typical norms Mm -hmm. in conversation or social interaction. So I think things like Flipgrid, where students don't have to, they can be funny, they can be themselves, they can... They can show what they know without it having to be a turn-taking moment every time. Oh, waiting for that question to come, and they can they can be, use of that app and show what they know. Then they can watch their peers, and they can watch their peers more than once. They can find their favorite teachers who teaches the the story problem in the best way. Maybe it's not the teacher. Maybe it's this other student, uh, this this <laughs> colleague of mine, uh, or should say, classmate. One of my favorite things to do on Flipgrid has been to do talent shows, a uh, classroom-wide talent shows. And so I work with so many students who have special interests and you know, let's we don't have to wait for a moment for you to get to share your love of dump trucks or spider webs or you know, US presidents, but we can actually maybe there's a quarterly talent show and anybody that wants to can post you know, maybe you can play guitar, but maybe you want to talk about spiders and spider webs instead. And that can be honored. And a lot of folks can see that. Um, so I love those potential connections, Jamboard, those kinds of tools where kids, you know, they, they're sharing content, they're sharing what they remember and they're getting to post, uh, their favorite things, but there's no, uh, there's, there's no, um, um, what's the word I want? Uh, uh, requirement, Mm -hmm. that there has to be a traditional give and take. And while I think those skills are necessary, and there's a space and time for them, I also think that a lot of folks are having their day finally, where it's like, wow, I can show what I know without having to, you know, engage in some of these other, um, you know, remember some of these rules, these social rules. So I think those will help us when we come back. And I also think that, um, you know, that there will be a new focus on things that have only been the, you know, the, 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 the you know, the, the the lessons always been centered around kids with disabilities. It's like, okay, look, everyone needs social skills or let's teach everybody how to calm down. It's
1: like, guess what? We all need that.
2: (laughs) And you know, it's so true, but this is actually right before the pandemic. I was in a third grade and they were doing zones of regulation in third grade. Yes, And I thought to myself, it's finally here. Like the UDL of all of this has arrived. And and think about that, Sasha. I mean, seating, adapted seating. 20 years ago, if you walked into a classroom and you saw adapted seating, you go, oh, a child with a disability is in this class. Now you walk in and you go, oh, it's just a fourth grade because everyone has that. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Or everyone fidgets and it's ubiquitous. So I think that kind of thing is going to be our friend. The fact that everyone's going to want to do teach meditation, everyone's going to want to teach calming down, everyone's going to want to teach, you know, strategies for um, connection, and and I think you're seeing a lot of traction these days. I don't know if it's because of the pandemic, but you're seeing a lot of traction these days on these ideas. That why is it only some kids that have to learn social skills? Yeah, I know. Why is the burden on some kids? We have to look learn- when really as you said it, Sasha, everybody needs it. And I think we're gonna see more and more of that in our schools.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point. And to like, you know, to hang on to that and and and, you know, notice those positive things. Cause I think it's easy for, you know, especially us as adults to be like, it's gonna be horrible going back or it's gonna be this, this, and this, but there's gonna be some things that'll be beneficial to the whole community, which, you know, we've got to hang on to that.
2: Well, Um, you know, and can I mention one more thing about that? Um, The other thing that's academic in nature, since we haven't mentioned too much about that, um, is I just really am excited about, you know, I can remember years ago saying how many students I, I worked with who loved repetition, who needed repetition. And I would say, you know, sort of as a UDL or a differentiations idea, is I would say, hey, do you think like you could come together as a as a science group, you know, science team? Maybe the two science teachers, special ed teacher, and maybe for the the big, you know, seven concepts of the year, could you make like you know three or four minute videos that some students could access for practice? You know, just videos of you talking about those concepts, and they would say, "What do you mean, like me make a video? Like that's so weird." You know, I mean, do it, but some. Or I remember talking to a kindergarten teacher and saying, "You know, what if you did some relous to welcome this child into kindergarten or pre-k? He's gonna have anxiety, he's gonna be worried he'd love seeing you know videos on repeat. You could be his favorite star. you could be blue. Yeah. screen. And just people feeling shy and anxious, I think that's also gone. Like I think people are like, put me on TikTok. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Absolutely. And they've done it. So that's actually one of the ideas in the book. There's a a, a section called um, Press Record. And I I talk about, I made a read aloud video at the beginning of the pandemic um, for a little kid's book that I did. Um, I talk about a music teacher using a green screen and really being, you know, his sort of very fun self, but doing these songs. And I'm imagining these kids going on YouTube on the weekends and watching their music teacher and learning those songs from Africa. There's a a TikTok, there's a science teacher in the book who's a first year um, science teacher who made this great biology TikTok video, um, you know, about cells and and her students were saying, play it again, play it again. Can you imagine <laughs> the, the, the benefit of students with disabilities being able to watch their teachers teach this content in a fun and whimsical way as many times yeah. as they want. I think that stuff is here to stay.
1: Yeah, and that and that's going to be huge. And, your you know, your point about, you know... Um, what you mentioned about recording and being more comfortable made me think of a story actually recently my cousin told me. She's a preschool teacher and she's like, you know, and she hates being on camera, hates being on camera. Obviously now is very used to it, but she was like, if I could, I would say that every year we should have the first week be virtual and then go in person because this is the first year I had no kids cry in the first day because oh, they all knew her already, right? you know? And she's like, I used to have weeks and weeks where kids would cry every day. And now they're they were used to her. You know, they had they had done all the virtual school with her. By the time they showed up, they were they were already comfortable. Oh, my gosh. That is such a lovely example. Yeah. So it's cool to think about the potential, like sending home meet the teacher videos and classroom tours and things like that. And all things that you're mentioning are just right from the
2: playbook of supporting kids uh, on the autism spectrum, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, those yes. are things, oh my gosh right? I mean, I yeah. remember writing about that in the first edition of You're Gonna Love This Kid is you know, make a video tour and thinking, will anybody do this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> But now I think schools actually by, on, you know, just as a practice, some schools have maps of the school. Some schools do have tours. And yeah. so, and those are great, just they're great universal design supports, not only for comfort, but parents that are making choices about schools. Um, and so you're absolutely right. These are just best practices, but they are so soothing for yeah. some of the students that we know.
1: They are, you know, I, before, before I let you go, I want to pick your brain about one more topic. That's a little, little off topic here. Cause I have, I can't not ask you this. I have like the inclusion expert here. <laughs> so, you know, I get, I get this question a lot. I actually got a text from a friend yesterday about this and I had these experiences as a classroom teacher too. Um, what advice do you have for teachers and also for parents who get pushback on, you know, inclusion practices and inclusion opportunities from administrators or from other teachers? So you mean that,
2: that the parents and the family wants this child to be included? Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah. Like a teacher, like, so for example, my friend is a, fir- in her third career, first year teacher, you know, during a pandemic, hardest year to be a first year teacher. <laughs> and she texted me and said, you know, the librarian or the, I forget it was librarian or gym teacher doesn't want my kids to come. What do I do? And this is what I'm going to tell her. Should I tell her that? And I was like, yes, you should stand up. And she's like, no, one. the other teachers didn't ask for it before. So I'm kind of expected to fall in line. But my kids deserve to have library or gym or whatever it was. And I remember as as a teacher, especially as a young teacher, having really similar experiences, you know advocating, hey, I want my fifth graders to go to lunch with the fifth graders and people being like, no, no, honey, we don't we don't do that this way. We do it this way. And yeah. being like, well, that's not right. <laughs> and it's heartbreaking.
2: I mean, I, if I could say one thing, I do feel like my program prepared me for this, my teacher preparation program, but I don't think many do. And I, I just think it was just a fluke uh, that it happened to be a, an aspect of my education. But, you know, that's, no one, you know, being a special ed teacher, that you know, so much of your job will be absorbed by advocacy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that is, you know, I write about that a lot actually, and you're going to love this kid. There's a whole chapter, uh, you know, on the role of the teacher. And in some ways, it's not fair how much energy has to go into that, but it is a fact of life. Um, and so I have, you know, some big answers to that and then some smaller answers. And the, fir- the two big answers are do never, ever hesitate to lead with research and the law. You know, we have two things at our backs that we didn't have when I started. When I was 22 years old, we didn't have not even a fragment of the research that we have today. And what folks need to know about the research in autism and inclusion is there isn't a single study that suggests that students do better elsewhere. And we have a growing body that suggests that students, including students with the most complex support needs, do better inside inclusive classrooms. So I would say, don't hesitate to put the research out there um, and to have a conversation about, you know, show me the money. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. show, yeah. here's what I have on my side and, you know, what's over there. And I wouldn't hesitate for a second to say, we have this. Language in the law, which, yeah. again, 30 years, we're, we're, we're celebrating 30 years of the ADA in 2020, we did. Um, and then we've got nearly 50 years of PL 94-142 that is uh, FAPE, you know, Free and Appropriate Public Ed, and we also have these, uh, you know, this law that suggests that when, you know, should, should say illustrates, outlines that if students' needs can be met inside inclusive classrooms, that's exactly where they need to be. Um, and I feel like sometimes we we sort of sidestep around these elements. It's like we have this really powerful <laughs> law um, that yeah. outlines what are the supports and services exactly, um, you know, what what is the implication? Um, you know, in these situations when somebody says no um, and we've got these um, these pillars behind us. So you a teacher cannot often often cannot do that on their own. So this is where you say you've got to not just share that with whoever you're interacting with. But this should be taken immediately to an administrator because these are uh, these are not it's not your opinion. You know, when people say, well, she doesn't believe in inclusion, it's like this isn't Santa Claus. This is not about belief. (laughs) We have a research body, just like we do with literature. And just like an administrator would not allow any fifth grade teacher to get away with doing round robin reading, where just like I grew up with, probably not yourself, when <laughs> I grew up, everybody read a sentence or paragraph, we went around the room, took forever, um, and that was reading. And no, your administrator wouldn't let you do it. It would not be allowed, because not because of their opinion or their belief, but because of the research. Yeah. Which again, the belief follows that. But so we have to we have to really um, take this to our administrators and say, this shouldn't be about my belief versus somebody else's belief. This should be about the law and the research versus this situation. So that's the first thing I would say is don't even get into belief systems, um, you know, at that level, because it should start with research and, and law. And then my my practical pieces that I'll say for for the the softer approach, when it's just like, oh, I think the person just doesn't know, and they're kind of, they're just more extending like questions to me. I have different answers for that. And some of the things that I say are, you know, is collaboration a possibility? I'll never forget approaching my second grade teacher friend. Her name's Erin Daperna, if she's out there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but approaching Erin and saying, you know, I wanna work with you. And we got to the point where she was first reluctant. Then interested, then excited, and to the point where we're like to the administrators: Can we take a wall down? And can we do this? <laughs> and we didn't end up doing that, but we did end up co-teaching and collaborating and doing all kinds of interesting things. But um, is co-teaching available? Is collaboration available? And what I I remember when I made a shift in my practice with some of my more reluctant partners, and what I would do is, and this doesn't always work. I get it, but sometimes I would move from saying, "Hey." can I bring this child in or could you have during morning meeting, could this child have a role? And all of a sudden I, I said, you know what? I'm going to try something else. And I would say, I'd like to try something. Is that okay? Could I lead the morning meeting? I want to try something. And I never was turned down. I was never turned out. I was it's a I will maybe a little flop and then I could make fun of myself and I wouldn't do it that way again. I think I'd give him his device first or, you know, whatever, <laughs> or could we co-teach something? I just wrote this lesson. I've not taught much social studies. Could I try something? So in your collaborations, be bold and be willing to say if they're going to learn new skills and have new students, could I also learn new skills yeah. and have new students? And even if you can't co-teach, collaborate all day, could you try a few things um again, for those folks that are sort of willing, but I'm sure a strategy like that might be helpful as well.
1: Yes. I love that. Like, you know, practical advice of like literally giving phrases of what to say, because sometimes that's what we need. You know, yeah. we need like, we need the script too. Absolutely. And
2: just the notion that we are sometimes nervous there, you know, I never forget the fifth grade teacher that said to me, I, I was sick all summer I, I don't know anything about Down syndrome and his he what he wa- he wanted me to get him a textbook on Down syndrome <laughs> and I was like, no, that's not what you need. I want you to meet this person and not only did they get along swimmingly but uh the teacher whose name was Gordon was a very um you know a very elegant guy and he wore a shirt and tie to school every day sometimes a jacket which is really unusual in fifth grade right. And it didn't take but two weeks for Adam, a student with Down syndrome, to wear a shirt and tie every single day.
1: Oh, I love and that. When
2: that started happening, you can bet they were thick as thieves. And those he did not want that textbook anymore. But um, but I, when I when he said I was sick all summer and it made me sick to my stomach, I realized, you know, I am sometimes dismissing some of these <laughs> feelings, and so. What am I nervous? Like maybe I'm nervous about teaching that math lesson. Let me try to show that I'm willing to learn new things too. Let me try to say what exactly is. Let's let's try some things together if if that's possible.
1: Yeah, and I love I love your first advice too on like you know leading with with the law and with research. That's kind of the advice I always give too, and and that I think can hopefully help. You know, I, I think of a lot of like a younger teacher too, first, second, third year teacher, where you don't want to make waves and you're just going to go with the status quo but you're like, oh, I know something's not right here that you know you have what's legally right on your side. Yeah. And I do. And that's absolutely right, Sasha. And and I love that
2: you're saying that. And I think sometimes when we fail to talk about that, it's a misunderstanding that this is about my philosophy versus your philosophy. And Mm -hmm. I really want to avoid that. Not because because, uh, an inclusive philosophy is a bad thing. I mean, I certainly have that. But it, we wouldn't ignore the research in any other area of education. And I gave that literacy example, which many yeah. folks do. Um, and so we should not be ignoring it here. I, one of the things I always say in my workshops is I'll say, raise your hand if you have high expectations for students with disabilities. You know, everybody raises their hand because it would be weird if you didn't. <laughs> and, but then I show them all the research on inclusion. And at the end of the exercise, I say, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand again, but what I want you to understand and think about is if you had your hand up and you truly have high expectations, I want you to pair your high expectations with advocacy for inclusion because this is what we know is possible. And so if your expectations are high, this is this is a path, right? And so we want people to understand that it's not just about, I have high expectations. And so I'm going to encourage you. It's also, I'm going to advocate what's for the best placement for you. Right. And that's maybe a different way to think about it.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I love that you're pointing out that, you know, for some people that might be reluctant, whether it's, you know, other teachers or administrators, it might just be coming from that lack of knowledge and, And that's something that we can help with. We're the ones that can help bridge that divide as the teacher.
2: Absolutely. The other thing I noticed that was really powerful was they don't know what we know. So not Mm -hmm. only in terms of how to, you know, what is Down syndrome and I don't need a textbook, but I realized that another colleague of mine who was a middle school teacher, all she could see was the student was not doing what other kids were doing. So after three months, she's saying, well, we tried inclusion, but I can see it didn't really work. She's thinking he's going to catch up and do what other kids are doing. And I said, let's look at his IEP. He's blown away every single objective. Last year, he wouldn't come in the room. Last year, he was up every seven minutes, wandering around in perimeter walking. He does the, she does, all she knows is general, all she sees is what he's doing now and what her other students are doing. She doesn't know where he's come from. She doesn't yeah. know this in comparison to what else. She doesn't see the adapted goals in front of her enough. And that was my fault. Um, but I think we also need to be cheerleaders, the wrong word, but we need to help people interpret what they're seeing. And to say, this is what he looked like last year. Do you understand what you've been able to do in just a month? Yeah. Do you know that he couldn't do this, this, and this until now? Do you know that he's finally raising his hand? Do you know he never could read three sentences? and You know, I learned that the hard way. And so that I think is the other element is when we are collaborating and serving as advocate to make sure that those around us um, understand the power of their support and understand what is possible in general ed.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and people want, people, you know, educators want to rise to high expectations too. When we're like, look at how much you've done. They're like, well, wait, I could do more. Like, let's keep going. <laughs> you
2: are absolutely right about that. That, uh, that, I, that has happened. I mean, I, I can't think about an instance where that was not the case.
1: Yeah. Where you and say, then
2: that- and, and especially when we say, and I know I didn't do it because I wasn't here. That's you. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. And people, you know, it's the, the field of education to me is, is unfortunately kind of a thankless field, like teachers, paraprofessionals, like we don't, they don't get thanked enough. So if you can, if you can thank your colleague, like that's huge. Oh my gosh! And I have to
2: say one more thing about
1: that. It's kind of a funny story, and it also brings us back to the book too. So it's full
2: circle. Oh, perfect. Yeah, but full it's circle hilarious. <laughs> Um You're a hundred percent. I'm with you, Sasha, on that. And not only do we not, I one of the things I have a different book on co-teaching, and the last section of the book is celebration, and people skip it. They think it's a silly, funny thing. Oh, she's just saying. She's just trying to kind of encourage us, and I say no. Celebration is actually a tool for growth because. When we stop and celebrate, even for a minute and say, you know what, Jason actually didn't run out the door today, or, or I really noticed that he was just gazing at you during that read aloud. and He never does that. It actually helps us notice the little things. And this is so important when we're working with kids, especially those with complex support needs, where they might make progress like in these smaller ways or ways that are hard to observe by one person. Um, so I think celebration and that idea of noticing and calling each other out is really important. And not only will it help folks do more, but it actually helps us all as a team identify what's working. And so the funny story is that this wonderful mom, her name is Robin Weckerly. She's amazing. She's a great writer. I knew her very casually before the book, and now we're kind of, you know, just thick as thieves now. Um and she wrote this great piece about called let them lead in the book and it's about parents and she tell me this funny story in the writing of this and um she said that she, that the uh, teacher did something amazing for her son during virtual ed and the the amazing thing was he loves mon he he makes books about monsters he writes them he puts pictures of monsters it's a little embarrassing for robin cuz she said oh why couldn't he show off the math he's doing or <laughs> <laughs> you know buddy and and she's like he picks this and you know for no reason that she should feel this way but one day she walks in the room and he's finally unmuted himself she can't believe it he's talking in what she calls kind of the normal relaxed voice which he never does when he's talking to a teacher and she's going what's happening and then she looks and he's actually sharing the monster book that's why he's so excited and relaxed she's going her first reaction is oh lord you know why is he sharing this <laughs> But then he's saying more and more. And she goes, oh, the teacher is just going to tell him, put that down, you know? And what, what, it, what happened is class ended, you know, kids hang out after class virtually. And he happened to show her this. And so other kids in the room and she's going, oh, what's the next page? And Robin's like, oh, my gosh, she's really listening to him, you know? So at the end of it. She says, oh, Rex, maybe you would want to add a sentence to some of those pages. I mean, isn't that the smartest teacher who's now going to make this a springboard? She's going to make (laughs) this fascination into a literacy exercise. So anyway, long story long, as Robin says, that teacher will just never know what that meant to us, like that he she would take the time, especially during virtual. And I said, oh, yes, that teacher will know because you are going to contact her. (laughs) <laughs> Immediately. But, you know, that's the thing is we we don't always do that. We don't have time. We think that, you know, we don't maybe we don't know the person that well. Maybe we don't want to bother that, person. you know, whatever. But she did. She did send the book to the that. teacher and the story. She did let the teacher know. Um, and it's something I've been trying to do a lot this year is just contact my kids' teachers. My kids do not have identified needs, but nevertheless, just to say, my gosh, that lesson was amazing. My gosh, my kid is engaged. You wouldn't believe what my child has been talking about at the dinner table. So teachers, let's call each other out, special and general ed, therapists, ELL, OTs, PTs, let's tell each other what's working. And and parents, uh, please tell your teachers what's working. And teachers, please tell your families how, what their support is meant to you. I mean, we we really
1: need each other more than yeah, ever. Yeah, we do. Oh, what a, what a perfect note to end on. It's like we planned that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes, that's right. And you brought um, book too. That's great. Full, full circle. Well, Paula, thank you so much. Can you share where everyone can go to learn more about you and to find out find all your books?
2: Absolutely. So the uh, well, I'm on social media, so you can pretty much find me anywhere on social media. Just uh, my handle is my name at Paula Cluth. But my, I have two websites. Um, we're kind of in the midst of merging. So you can find me always at my name, paulacluth.com. And the new project that will be up and running soon, uh, it's up and running now, but it'll be um, more, um, I guess uh, the site will be more populated soon is called inclusionrules.com, www.inclusionrules.com. So it's kind of a fun, um, a fun, a new project. Um, And, you know, it's also perfect that we, you know, inclusion does rule. And so that's why I I wanted to have a second site of just in the celebration of inclusion. So Um, so they can find more about the book on both of those sites. Um, And the book itself, of course, is just um, on Amazon is the easiest place to find it because it's a self-published work.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Paula, for joining us. You bet. Thank you for having me again, Sasha.
2: I really, really enjoyed talking to you.
1: You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening.